This is the Nietzsche Podcast. Hello, everyone. Uh, before the episode, we have a announcement here. I've got a musical project. It's called Slumbering Sun. It's brand new, and we're going to do a live stream tomorrow on Studio E. So if you're interested in hearing some of my music that I've been writing and working on, kind of in between doing the podcast, started out as songs played on the acoustic guitar right here in this room where I record the podcast, and then now it's been recorded as a full album and uh, mixed and mastered and all of that. So um, we're going to do a live stream to sort of promote and play live for all of you for the first time. That's going to be at 9 p.m. Central U.S. time tomorrow. And I'll link the channel in the description of where you can watch it if you're interested. Without further ado, here is the episode for this week. In our study of Nietzsche's politics, uh, we began by looking at the history of Greece and the political order as it evolved alongside the Greek religious beliefs. Then we looked to Theogenes, the poet of Megara, who lived through a period of social revolutions throughout the Greek city-states. He was an aristocrat who was banished, uh, lived uh, a life of relative poverty to what he was used to, then returned to the city after the oligarchy had taken over once again, only to find that things would never quite be the same. We've examined the work of Thucydides, the honest historian, as Nietzsche saw him, who gives us the story of the Peloponnesian War, and whom Nietzsche called the cure to the idealism of Plato's political philosophy that we studied in the Republic. And then finally, Epicurus, a Greek from the early Alexandrian period who advocated for a type of anti-politics, of a withdrawal from the life of political strife, and uh, said that that was the best life for the philosopher, sort of a complete opposite of what Plato would say. What we find in Nietzsche's politics that reflects these influences are, in my opinion, three major things. For one, what is commonly known today as a realist view on politics, and especially on geopolitics. Politics is conceived of, in this view, as taking place within the bella omnium contra omnes of nature, which means that political structures are always acted upon by external forces, by nature itself, by the violence or potential violence of other polities, and uh, we might also consider economic forces and so on. We might consider Thucydides' assertion that war is a harsh teacher because it shows us what people truly value, how men behave in the face of existential threats. It tests our morality against necessity. It tests our ideals against the reality. And so accordingly, in Nietzsche's politics, there's always an awareness that when the chips are down, people act out of this necessity. Political actors follow their own advantage and furthermore, as revealed in the terrifying Melian dialogue, the strong do what they can and the weak suffer what they must. Power relationships always determine what can be accomplished politically, appeals to right, to justice, and so on, are, in Nietzsche's view, faulty thinking. That is a gloss on reality that is refuted, in fact, by the study of human history. The second aspect of Nietzsche's politics that he derives from the Greeks his cultural war against democracy. Like Theogenes, he favors aristocratic forms of government, but he's unwilling to entertain notions of political revolution himself, and so Nietzsche regarded his role as to culturally influence society in an anti-democratic fashion. 
or anti-egalitarian fashion. In the same way that Theognis wished to instruct Cyrnus, his uh, student, in his ideals, you know, that staunchly reject democracy, Nietzsche wishes to influence generations of future philosophers to oppose democracy, socialism, and uh, utilitarianism. And ultimately, his philosophy encompasses this rejection of utilitarianism, or what Nietzsche calls the theoretical approach to life in his early work. And to some extent, I think the term utilitarianism could really encompass all these aforementioned concepts like democracy, socialism, etc. Nietzsche doesn't believe that mass action actually can change the fact of how power works, that democratic energy, um, it, will, it will never actually result in in an egalitarian distribution of social power. Uh, that energy will simply be used to destroy what traditions have built, what has been built so insensibly and irrationally by the unconscious work of culture and religion and so on. And so the theoretic approach to life is Nietzsche's real enemy here. It's what sort of triumphed and uh, what he believes in some form, you know, especially after surviving as a central part of Christianity, um, took over the Western mind. And this goes all the way back to his critique in Birth of Tragedy of the belief that we can destroy the old world enchantments, but replace them with a logically generated and more ideal system of government and a more, you know, ideal moral system rooted in reason. But in actual fact, will to power is what governs, according to Nietzsche. Or rather, it's what describes the pattern of human relationships. And this will always be true, regardless of what type of government we attempt to generate. There will always be a class of rulers in Nietzsche's view. And therefore, the only question is how to determine what kind of people the rulers are. And so accordingly, he doesn't attempt to achieve his ends with mass action or popular politics, but thinks to wage his war philosophically, seeing that it is the deepest beliefs we hold and the values we adhere to that determines our politics. And so in order to have a significant long-term effect on politics, Nietzsche calculates that he must somehow change people's beliefs. But this dovetails into the third and final aspect that you can find in Greek philosophy that I think is reflected in Nietzsche, and that's the anti-politics of Epicurus. It's also related to Nietzsche's love of Heraclitus and that philosopher's solitary, self-assured nature. Nietzsche wishes for the philosophers of the future to be, I mean, he uses the term self-legislators, which one could interpret politically, but what more often is emphasized is sort of the opposite of imposing one's will directly on the world, um, funnily enough. I mean, often Nietzsche is keen to recommend solitude and, with, and a withdrawal from the world, and especially for withdrawal from the world of petty or partisan politics. You know, all of the arguments in the marketplace, right? And that's because I think Nietzsche recognized that the philosopher's role was not to try and change the world oneself, but to make their mark upon the world of culture, the world of the mind, we might say, which I wouldn't, I wouldn't correlate personally directly with the intellect, but um, we might say also with the spirit, you know, the zeitgeist, right? And that the philosopher might direct or redirect the zeitgeist, if you will. And that for this reason, the philosopher ought to make themselves untimely and direct their concerns not to the immediate political struggles of the time, but to the political questions that have concerned mankind throughout all time 
and have a much longer sightedness with their politics, we might say. And so those are the three main aspects, realism, anti-democratic sentiment, and withdrawal from immediate political concerns, anti-politics or untimeliness, however you want to call it. And when we consider this in light of Nietzsche's overarching philosophical project, this adds up to a vision of the ideal philosopher as apart from and above society, right? Above the world of politics and economics, in much the same way that the Greek intellectuals, all of them aristocrats, were allowed to be free from the world of economic competition and thus not have to sell their labor or manage businesses or anything of the kind. The Greek nobility was allowed to be a class of leisure, and this separated them from the world of labor and from the stress of economic competition. Um, you know, even as members of the capitalist class, you're still um, engaged in that competition over capital. And so Nietzsche thinks accordingly that to become a philosopher, to develop one's thoughts and become a sincere thinker, um, what he calls a free spirit, right? One has to be removed from the marketplace. That's the practical effect on Nietzsche's life and his thought from these ideas, which are rooted in the Greek political philosophy that we've gone over, that one should free themselves from the voice of the many. One should free oneself from the concerns of labor and economics. And one should accordingly, from that angle, from an, an angle where one is not uh, thinking out of, you know, where their, their political thoughts aren't going to be pushed in one direction or another by what will give them advantage in a partisan competition for status or something of that nature, right? And that with this freedom from being pushed upon by the morality of the greatest number and pushed upon by economic incentives and political agendas and all of these things, you could actually begin to view the world as it really is, um, more from above, from a bird's eye view, right? Uh, apart from the moral concerns of the collective. So Nietzsche's theory of the Greek philosophers uh, might contain this element that they achieved this freedom and accordingly they were able to become great philosophers. And I think this accounts for why Nietzsche appreciates the Greeks more than the Romans, since the Roman nobility was, they were more financially prudent, more concerned with managing and growing their fortunes, and, uh, you know, it's often said among historians of Nietzsche's time that the, the Romans are a more pragmatic or practical people. The sentiment is uh, emphasized in Nietzsche's work, and they produce no, um, you know, great uh, wealth of philosophers like Greece does. Um, and so it's interesting that um, Nietzsche, as a philosopher himself, um, you know, he favors the Greek society, even though if you were to take a maybe a surface reading of what his political philosophy implies, you might think that he would admire the Romans more. But, you know, it's because it's, it's a funny thing. He spends a great deal of time emphasizing what we might call quality in a physical sense, right? Or in a realist sense or a phenomenal sense, an embodied quality, an embodied set of values. The good is what is good in the physical world, what's effective in the physical world, what's efficient, Right. That's what he says at the beginning of the Antichrist. What he's looking for is virtue in the Renaissance sense, virtue in terms of efficiency, expediency. And that accounts for a great deal of Nietzsche's martial values, you know, his praise of war and warriors and so on. Because in addition to other reasons, we have to note that in a very practical sense, the business of war is required not only for survival, but the very existence of anything like 
art and culture. And yet, Nietzsche doesn't seem to hold the existence of barbarians in a sort of like cultureless, purely martial state to be something desirable in comparison to, say, ancient Greece. You know, he recognizes that the fruits of culture are great artists, great philosophers, people who do great works. And he he wants the fruits of culture to be born. Um, you know, he it, on the other side of that coin, he writes about the non-theoretical man, the man of the greatest power in the physical world, right? The sort of great general, the martial man, the Caesars, the Napoleons, and so on. Um, he treats this as the greatest type of individual, but he still praises the Greeks over the Romans. Um, you know, despite Caesar being a de definitively Roman character and there being really no such corresponding character among the Greeks, or I mean, I, if you look at Plutarch, I think the parallel to Caesar in Greece is Alexander. But, you know, it's funny because the Alexandrian age, the unified empire brought about in the wake of Alexander and the culture in which it lived are not exactly treated by Nietzsche as positive either. Rather, he sees the Alexandrian age as overall a uh, step down from the glory days of Hellenistic Greece when the Greeks lived artistically, religiously, they lived irrational lives. Um, the polis were all um, divided. They were individual city-states constantly at war with one another. Um, and the next most praise he has is for the pre-Platonics culminating in Socrates. Um, and so Alexander shows up during a time of decline. And Caesar shows up at, during a time of decline, for that matter, right? And so it seems that the, the non-theoretical man to Nietzsche is so important because he exists where the spell of culture has failed where the enchantment of religion is dissolving and where the polity kind of is at a danger of crumbling sort of beyond the boundaries of society, right? Um, society when it's secure and well-ordered when, uh, when we begin to go beyond that um, because mankind seems to have this pattern of recurring political upheaval where we regularly have to journey beyond the boundaries of civilization. Um, I think that kind of, might make sense of this contradiction of Nietzsche, both praising the non-theoretical man and um, praising quality in the physical embodied sense, and thus having this sort of dark reverence for the barbarian with the fact that he holds up the Greeks as the greatest civilization and sees really the most important thing in the political sense of as bringing forth these geniuses, right? The way that we deal with that contradiction, I think, is we see the non-theoretical man as of chief importance because his particular form is totally autonomous and exists independently of the age, right? Um, like Nietzsche would believe a person like a Caesar would thrive in any situation. He doesn't need the protection of a state to do his art because his art is warfare, right? Or to fulfill his greatness, you know? And so if we're to speak of the purposes of states, when do they function? Well, Nietzsche sees the purpose, uh, the fruit, as the great people of the artistic variety, of the religious and philosophical variety. But where does this occur? It occurs in a sort of walled-off garden that's been settled or created by one of those non-theoretical men, right? By, um, you know, a, a Caesar or a Napoleon or something like that. And so the measure of a society is the degree to which it can produce such great individuals. Greece far exceeds Rome in this respect. And thus, even though Rome's pragmatic, worldly, and martial qualities might lead us to believe that the Romans would be Nietzsche's favorites among antiquity, he is always definitively more Greek 
because the Greeks succeed in the task of culture. Whereas Rome, as Nietzsche would write in his later career, he calls it a female culture. And what he means is that by this is that Rome is receptive, culturally speaking, right? Rome's not known for successfully exporting uh, the worship of Jupiter to all the world, but rather for being, uh, to put it in analogical terms, uh, like inseminated by Christianity. Um, Jesus, coming out of the Jewish tradition, quote-unquote impregnates Rome with Christianity and that ultimately the child of the Roman Empire, um, you know, culturally speaking, was Christendom in Europe, which dominated the European mind for centuries after. Whereas the Greeks are, they're definitely not a fem feminine culture. They have a definite content to their culture, which is different from our own. And it's assertive of its own good. It's warlike in many respects. And in Nietzsche's view, it's more in tune with reality. And so um, Nietzsche has a awareness of the fact that the, what would you say? This is maybe a difference between him and Plato because he sees that the, existence of the philosopher is dependent on the warrior, right? That the whole reason why the philosopher exists is because of a state that was sort of carved out of the state of nature. Whereas Plato would say, I guess the philosopher is of greater importance than the warrior position in society because the philosopher has to sort of uh, guide the warriors or else they will, you know, degenerate and collapse out of their own individualistic vying for ambition between one another. But in some sense, the reason why Nietzsche would praise, you know, um, like a great warrior or military leader is because the art and philosophy and culture that is created out of the state that they found is sort of all owed to that figure, right? It's like, it's interesting. It's like they're uh, somebody... Um, who has no real artistic contribution to the world um, is nevertheless responsible for all art and culture by the very act of creating a polity. And so I think that's the explanation for Nietzsche's view of genius and the state, right? And so we'll, we'll get into this because in this episode, which is going to kind of conclude our Greek studies, um, uh, you know, we're we're going to move on to Machiavelli next, who's going to give us his own view on Roman history, which will serve as, a, I think, a nice connecting point from antiquity to the Renaissance. But um, we're going to take a look at some of Nietzsche's fragments first, in which he elaborates on these ideas. Um, the need for leisure, right? The warlike competitive culture of the Greeks that he so loved and the, the function of the state and protecting the ground in which culture can take root. And so we're going to look first at the Greek state and this fragment from 1872 was originally meant to be included as part of birth of tragedy as a political section of the work. Instead, it survives as a fragmentary essay, but it nevertheless includes some fascinating observations from Nietzsche about the Hellenes. Nietzsche begins quote, we moderns have an advantage over the Greeks in two ideas which are given, as it were, as a compensation to the world, behaving thoroughly slavishly and yet at the same time anxiously eschewing the word slave. We talk of the dignity of man and of the dignity of labor. Everybody worries in order to miserably perpetuate a miserable existence. This awful need compels man to consuming labor. 
he, or more exactly the human intellect, seduced by the will, now occasionally marvels at labor as something dignified. However, in order that labor might have a claim on titles of honor, it would be necessary, above all, that existence itself, to which labor, after all, is only a painful means, should have more dignity and value than it appears to have had up to the present to serious philosophies and religions. What else may we find in the labor need of all the millions but the impulse to exist at any price, the same all-powerful impulse by which stunted plants stretch their roots through earthless rocks? End quote. So Nietzsche, his, his argument here is that what the Greek sees in labor is simply the self-preservative instinct, and that means that it's not anything laudable in and of itself, and that, in fact, it's something shameful because it's only a painful means. And, you know, given Nietzsche's appraisal of the Greek social order through the lens of his aristocratic radicalism, we might interpret this passage as like a condemnation of the value of labor. But notice that here, as with all things Nietzsche, it's not so simple because he says that we have an advantage over the Greeks insofar as we've invented these concepts of the dignity of man and the dignity of labor. So they are invented, they are the products of the human mind. They're not moral facts of reality, but merely moral interpretations of the facts, such that in the modern mind, whether one comes from the left wing or from the right wing, we tend to believe in the dignity of labor. Either because, you know, uh, if we go to the all the way to the left-hand side, you know, the proletariat is the class that we wish to side with and uplift through the overthrow of their exploitation. Um, or, as in the right-wing view, you know, the, the capitalistic view, the person who accepts their lot in the capitalist system and does an honest day's work and, you know, plays the game honestly, right, ought to be respected as a worker who contributes to the economy and pays their taxes and so on and so forth. Um, or may, maybe in modern day America, there might not be so much praise for paying your taxes, taxes, especially among libertarians. But um, in any case, you know, the, the Greeks didn't have these notions of respecting the worker. Uh, Nietzsche does not believe that such a respect would be warranted if we take a sober view of reality, but must be accounted for by a conscious gloss on reality. On, uh, it's based on a moral fiction. And he goes on to write, quote, The Greeks did not require such conceptual hallucinations. For among them, the idea that labor is a disgrace is expressed with startling frankness and another piece of wisdom more hidden and less articulate but everywhere alive added that the human thing also was an ignominious and piteous nothing and the dream of a shadow labor is a disgrace because existence has no value in itself End quote. we might remember the wisdom of salinas the old story of uh, the companion of Dionysus who tells King Midas the best thing for humanity is never to have been. Um, you know, we might recognize in the Greek attitude that Nietzsche is describing here, you could interpret it as, you know, a it's a rebuke to the idea that life seeks after the preservation of life. It's a rebuke to Schopenhauer, right? Nietzsche, the, in the will to, to live being the primary driver of life. Nietzsche does not believe that this view of life is inherently valuable or life inherently aiming for its own preservation is necessarily manifest in the various cultures of the world. 
that the Greeks seem to value something higher than self-preservation, and in fact, see those who only live for their own preservation as decrepit, pathetic souls. Um, and so the Greeks have such an aversion to labor, such that even the labor of creating art, this was even experienced with a sense of shame by the Greeks. Um, to the Greeks, art is created as a result of the possession by a god or muse, and so the human body is seized as in what you could interpret as a form of servitude or slavery, right? You're being, it's shameful to the Greek because it makes you a subordinate, a slave, and even being enslaved by a god is shameful. And so we can also be certain that Nietzsche acknowledges the ways in which he himself is different from the Greeks, insofar as, I mean, Nietzsche seems to have no shame about being a servant of Dionysus and in offering up the fruits of his labor, his intellectual labor for his muse, since he was a prolific writer, not only of philosophy, but also poetry and music. He doesn't seem to have any shame around this, and rather endeavored to make his philosophy musical, right? He wished at one time, perhaps for a musical career. So um, it's another way that it's not, it's a mistake to think that when Nietzsche is speaking of the Greeks, that he necessarily is wholly signing off on everything they believed, right? That would be a little a little bit silly. But nevertheless, Nietzsche writes the following, quote, To the Greek, the work of the artist falls just as much under the undignified conception of labor as any ignoble craft. But if the compelling force of the artistic impulse operates in him, then he must produce and submit himself to the need of that labor. And as a father admires the beauty and the gift of his child, but thinks of the act of procreation with shamefaced dislike, so it was with the Greek. The joyful astonishment at the beautiful has not blinded him as to its origin, which appeared to him, like all becoming in nature, to be a powerful necessity, a forcing of itself into existence. That feeling by which the process of procreation is considered as something shamefacedly to be hidden, although by it man serves a higher purpose than his individual preservation. Same feeling veiled also the origin of the great works of art, in spite of the fact that through them a higher form of existence is inaugurated, just as through that other act comes a new generation. The feeling of shame seems therefore to occur where man is merely a tool of manifestations of will infinitely greater than he is permitted to consider himself in the isolated shape of the individual. End quote. Uh, it's a wonderful insight, and it speaks to something else about the Greeks, which is so interesting, in that in their naivete about themselves, they're so haughty and they're willing that they would attack even the instincts within themselves, right? Um, you know, when in the because if if we're to believe Nietzsche that the in, that art, for example, would would derive from an instinct, or we might call a drive or something, right? Something irrational and unconscious in you when you feel that press upon the consciousness and make itself manifest into a desire those desires themselves are sort of an affront to the proud greek will and so even though they recognize the beauty of what their art creates and the importance of it that, that it's a, a path to something higher the sculptor is still ashamed for having been used uh, by his muse and thus having birthed the sculpture it's like he's been you know uh, the deity has taken the artist against his will and had her way with him. And even if the offspring is beautiful, there's a sense of shame. And again, Nietzsche establishes this unusual character trait of the Greeks as something opposed and foreign 
to our own conceptions. Neither is good or bad, right? We're not doing moralism here. It's simply an observation of the differences in how the Greeks would see things versus the way we do. And so this is why Nietzsche loves the Greeks so much, that the culture of their aristocrats is so aristocratic as to even regard the fact of having to act out of necessity as being a source of shame. And like all of the necessary struggles of existence, all of the time and effort devoted to merely existing, this is a shame, right? It's so outrageous from our perspective because everything in nature obviously has to struggle to survive. And thus by making the transcendence of this struggle for existence the measure of nobility and value, the Greeks have made the transcendence of nature itself the goal of their culture. And we might remember if you read through Birth of Tragedy with me, this is a big sticking point for Nietzsche. And to sum it up as quickly as I can, he thought that a lot of the existing scholarship on the Greeks was simplistic or oversimplified to the point of being wrong. Because one of the things they often emphasized was the Greeks having a sense of naive cheerfulness and a being more in touch with nature, quote unquote, right? And Nietzsche sees the Greeks in a completely different way. He thinks they had a tragic outlook on life. Uh, he thinks they were not naive at all, that they were in many ways surpassed us in terms of their level of culture. And they're not um, in some sort of like Rousseauian communion with the natural world. Um, they, like all things that come out of nature, are aimed at overcoming um, their nature as it is now, right? This is how he understands the Greeks. And so I think this can help us make sense of Nietzsche's passage about the aristocratic bearing that we read in the first episode of the season of the ironically somewhat stoical picture that Nietzsche gives, although he'd probably hate that characterization of it, of someone who's unmoved by any circumstance, unflappable, able to endure hours of standing at court or of remaining composed without showing any signs of fatigue. In short, an individual whose will is able to tyrannize over what their instincts tell them to do. This is fundamentally different from the Socratic vision of the intellect ruling within that, you know, the, the tripartite soul. In Nietzsche's picture of the ideal person, you know, the lion, the spirit, the will is what rules. And so rather than being a distinct entity within the self, what the will of an individual looks like is more like the sum total of all of his drives when ordered into a coherent pattern. It's certainly arguable that this type of analysis might raise many questions concerning Nietzsche's view of the body and the, his view on drives, like sort of the relationship of will to intellect and so on. And there are some earlier episodes on those topics, which I think will shed light on that topic for you. But I don't think Nietzsche himself fully settles these issues in his writing, so I think we'll lay them aside for now. The key issue is the Greek goal of transcending the limitations of human nature by delivering the human animal from the blind striving of nature and from the necessities of work and toil into leisure, right? Surprisingly enough, into an elevated state where one is kept distance from those limitations on humanity, that pathos of distance, right? And thus allowed to flower into a truly human being, a no longer animal who can develop the intellect, philosophize, create values, and so on. And this is reflected in Nietzsche's later writing that the aristocrats throughout time or we might say aristocrats of the spirit because not all people born into no nobility have this quality and certainly 
There are some who have this quality without being born into it, and even Nietzsche is willing to admit that. Um, but the aristocrats of the spirit have always been concerned with this transcendence of human nature, um, transcending what is base and animal. And one might say that religion is concerned with this also, right? And I would say that's quite true, but religion attains this end by that pursuit of the metaphysical true world, which results in the rejection of this one um, and the devaluing of the good of the body, of the good of sense pleasures and the sort of, a, of that embodied sense of quality, the physical sense of quality. And it ends in a wholesale negation of the world of the senses. For the Greeks, the good was always embodied, at least until Socrates and Plato you know, came out, came along. And so the essay, The Greek State, ends up being very relevant to a broader understanding of Nietzsche's thought because it shows how he might have developed his philosophical um, project, as it were, the chief task uh, being to elevate mankind beyond what is human all too human, teach us to aim for something which is above human or over and beyond humanity. But as regards our focus on political philosophy, the significance here is what Nietzsche calls the relationship between state and genius in this essay. The state facilitates the emergence of genius by creating the social situation where, you know, that one class of people is removed from the necessities of labor. And again, as antithetical as this is to our own egalitarian notions, I, I used this example before, but I, I think it's very powerful. Even we regard it as a tragedy when, for example, a potentially great scientific mind would, is forced to live out their life in poverty without ever having the means or the education or the resources to manifest their talent. When we lament the lost Einsteins who might have contributed to the sum total of our knowledge, we are lamenting that they were not removed from the need to labor for their own existence. We're lamenting that they were not elevated beyond that state into one in which they were freed from want which inevitably means being supported by the labor of others. And that's the dark side we don't want to look at, and it's what upsets everyone reading Nietzsche when you take it seriously. Um, I think the main difference, too, with our viewpoint today, not everyone's, I, I think there seem to actually be some people who believe that we could all be entirely liberated, all of us, from the need to labor, or at least from the necessity of labor to just deal with our basic needs, right? Um, that we could be freed, all of us, as an entire human race to pursue whatever higher goals we see fit. And that's what we might call the, the Star Trek utopian vision, right? I'm, I love Star Trek, by the way. Um, but, uh, you know, whereas the liberal view of old, to contrast it, it might be that the, sort of the capitalist realist model that we're never going to um, move out of some sort of structural inequality and that therefore we, you know, that's where things like Christianity or um, on the other side of things, communism come in to say that labor has a dignity in and of itself, right? But then there's also Nietzsche's view, which doesn't really fit with any of these, that not everyone can be raised out of um, the state of what we might call like quotidian survival. Um, and it doesn't line up with a capitalist realist view either, because he doesn't think that this should be, that this means the governing yourself based on the laws of the market is inevitable, but rather simply that the advancement of one group of people always comes at the expense of others due to differing capacities of mankind and the fact that 
the hierarchy in and of itself is always parasitical. That the further up you go in the pyramidal structure of society, you're inevitably drawing on energy that's produced by people at the lower rungs. And I guess that's another difference between him and like a capitalist realist type, because Nietzsche doesn't really believe the rising tides lift all boats um, analogy is true. Um, you know, it may be true sometimes in some limited circumstances, but that overall, um, the nature of human competition is going to always result in um, exploitation of those with less power to defend themselves against it, right? So Nietzsche writes, quote, Accordingly, we must accept this cruel-sounding truth that slavery is of the essence of culture, a truth, of course, which leaves no doubt as to the absolute value of existence. This truth is the vulture that gnaws at the liver of the Promethean promoter of culture. The misery of toiling men must still increase in order to make the production of the world of art possible to a small number of Olympian men. End quote. So we can, again, see the influence of Greece on Nietzsche's philosophy, but it's, it's not exactly in a way that's very pleasant to, to read, right? What follows in the essay are a number of interesting comments about what Nietzsche sees to be the origin of the state. And he says, the state is instinct incarnate, that the entire political structure emerges from an instinctual origin. And this is because as Nietzsche sees it, the laws of nature, we might say, dictate that reality of the order of rank, of the domination and exploitation of the stronger over the weaker, and the state is simply the social order manifest into a political um, form wherever it is that the state emerges. It's the use of force to back the social order that's beneficial to the stronger, who are the ones who established it, right? And so we must contrast this view of the state given here in the Greek state against Nietzsche's comments in, for example, The New Idol, the passage from Thus Spoke Zarathustra, about the, it's a passage about the state. And it's important, I think, to understand the very different ways that he talks about the state there. Um, what Nietzsche calls in that passage the coldest of all monsters is the state when it ceases to be a function. When it ceases to be an expression of a healthy social order, we might say, and instead becomes something worshipped in and of itself. Or when the power of the state becomes unmoored from humanity, right, and reified into an abstract entity in our minds. And that I think that's a development that does begin to happen that you could sort of blame the theoretical way of life for, the theoretical view of life for, right? That happened um, towards the end of Greek society and arguably happens um, with the Enlightenment. And so Nietzsche says that the communists and the socialists and their weaker descendants, the liberals, in actuality... Uh, in raising their objections, they're objecting to culture itself, that all culture is premised on the use of state power, which enforces an unequal social arrangement, and to oppose this injustice is to wish to tear down the walls of culture. Nietzsche writes, quote, Every moment devours the preceding one. Every birth is the death of innumerable beings. Begetting, living, murdering, all is one. Therefore, we may compare this grand culture with the blood-stained victor, who in his triumphal procession carries the defeated along as slaves chained to his chariot. 
slaves whom a beneficent power has so blinded that, almost crushed by the wheels of the chariot, they nevertheless still exclaim, Dignity of labor, dignity of man, end quote. And so I think a very important point is that this exploitation and this order of rank exists in our own time. And even as these ideas have flourished in the past couple thousand years, born on the Christian morality, um, and especially in the past couple hundred, Nietzsche writes that, quote, the same cruelty which we found in the essence of every culture lies also in the essence of power, which is always evil, end quote. You know, again, he wrote this around the time of birth of tragedy, so it might be surprising to hear Nietzsche call power evil. But it's almost like he's using the word in an extra moral sense, isn't it? Right? Um, he's just sort of pointing out that power is, quote unquote, always evil in the Christian sense of the word, and the, what is it, the Lord Acton quote of power always corrupting, right? Um, but. So the difference, and remember he called this an advantage at the beginning of this essay, an advantage we have over the ancient Greeks in terms of our ideas, is that the Greeks didn't attempt to glorify the conquered or the enslaved, whereas we do, in order to maintain the illusion that we're living in accord with our values and not basing our own culture upon slavery. And the reason why for all of this is that, as Nietzsche argues, the Germans found nothing morally objectionable about slavery, and neither did the Christians. And so, you know, post-Roman Empire, which sort of gestated in the Carolinian Empire and the Holy Roman Empire centered in Germany and France, that relieved the inner tension of the social relationship of master and slave by making slavery feel less objectionable. The medieval bondsman, uh, the feudal serf, was not compelled to think of his position as shameful, but as part of a net of relations within a divinely ordained feudal system. And ultimately, all men are slaves to God, right? Even the highest king is a slave to God. And so submission and obedience are virtues which will ensure one's eternal salvation, not something shameful. And all are equal in the eyes of God, right? It's from this Christian origin that we in modern times receive the idea of the dignity of labor, the dignity of work, the respect for hard work, at least in Nietzsche's estimation. And it's not the immediate consequence of regarding the necessity of labor as praiseworthy that Nietzsche condemns. I mean, in fact, he writes that the gospel of St. John is like, it's like a beautiful gem that comes out of this, uh, this zeitgeist, this revaluation of values in Christianity. But it, it's the downstream consequences of these ideas that seem to bother Nietzsche the most, because by honoring those who are forced to labor, first for the good of God's moral order, and then as we later develop the idea for the good of the many or for the good of society at large, we are putting a moral gloss on exploitation, which has the effect of giving more glory and importance to the state. Like if society at large, or if the greatest many are the ends to which our labor is devoted and all men are equal, Men are simply stewards over a society which is run by a system, which is governed by laws and not men. And so it, in that conception, the state becomes something very different from the way it would be understood by the Greek. Nietzsche brings out this contrast in an interesting way in this paragraph. Quote, He who cannot reflect upon the position of affairs in society without melancholy, 
who has learned to conceive of it as the continual painful birth of those privileged culture men in whose service everything else must be devoured, he will no longer be deceived by that false glamour which the moderns have spread over the origin and meaning of the state. For what can the state mean to us if not the means by which that social process described just now is to be fused and to be guaranteed in its unimpeded continuance? Be the sociable instinct in individual man as strong as it may, it is only the iron clamp of the state that constrains the large masses upon one another in such a fashion that a chemical decomposition of society with its pyramid-like superstructure is bound to take place. Whence, however, originates the sudden power of the state, whose aim lies much beyond the insight and beyond the egoism of the individual? How did the slave, the blind mole of culture, originate? The Greeks, in their instinct relating to the law of nations, have betrayed it to us in an instinct, which even in the ripest fullness of their civilization and humanity never cease to utter as out of a brazen mouth such words as, To the victor belongs the vanquished, with wife and child, life and property. Power gives the first right, and there is no right which at bottom is not presumption, usurpation, violence. Here again, we see with what pitiless inflexibility nature, in order to arrive at society, forges for herself the cruel tool of the state, namely that conqueror with the iron hand, who is nothing else than the objectivation of the instinct indicated. End quote. So the, in the Greeks at that ancient date, the state comes into being as a direct manifestation of that primordial pain and contradiction of nature that Nietzsche is always talking about in The Birth of Tragedy. The basis of the state, as Nietzsche describes it, it's, it's not very different from the understanding that the Athenians give us in the Melian Dialogue. Or to use a different example, you know, the words of the Gallic conqueror of Rome, you know, to the, the Romans who protested the terms of their surrender to the Gauls, um, who told uh, the Romans, woe to the vanquished, right? The state, the political superstructure that organizes mankind, it forms as a cruel tool of nature. It's forged as an objectification of instinct. But over time, the iron clamp of the state constrains the natures of its inhabitants such that they begin to form collective values. They begin to experience a sense of shared destiny, of a contradiction with their individualism, and they begin to dissolve the pyramid-like superstructure. This is the meaning of Nietzsche's later writings where he describes the decline of the polity as alike to the waning of one's instincts, right? We've given a false glamour to the state, Nietzsche writes, and in a sense, this is bound to happen. The state will eventually be used to dissolve society and will become this new idol to which um, it seems to exist as an end unto itself. And so Nietzsche says that when we go back to look at the origin of the state, we ought to be horrified. Its origins are bloody and violent. States come out of these sudden, you know, outbursts, right, of a uh, often a barbarian people, as Nietzsche would describe them, and they always result in destruction. But Nietzsche still sees that this process is a necessary prerequisite for genius, for the productions of culture to emerge, for great lives to be led, and so on. And so he writes that during the violent times in which states emerge, there's an almost, like, we might even 
make a comparison to like a Hegelian movement within society in which no individual mind is holding the reins, but rather, quote, the calculating intellect is enabled to see an addition of forces only when now the state is even contemplated with fervor as the goal and ultimate aim of the sacrifices and duties of the individual. Then, out of all that speaks the enormous necessity of the state, without which nature might not succeed in coming through society to her deliverance and semblance in the mirror of genius. End quote. Nietzsche ultimately has an ambivalent view of the state, therefore. It's violent and domineering in its origin. It is weak and faltering when it inevitably becomes dominated by moral illusions. And supposing that doesn't happen and the state remains strong, it eventually becomes this cold, inhuman monster toward which men sacrifice, but which is now unmoored from its purpose and becomes an enemy of culture rather than its nurturer. Nietzsche sums up this ambivalent view as follows, quote, One would feel inclined to think that a man who looks into the origins of the state will henceforth seek his salvation at an awful distance from it. And where can one not see the monuments of its origin? Devastated lands, destroyed cities, brutalized men, devouring hatred of nations. The state of ignominiously low birth for the majority of men, a continually flowing source of hardship, at frequently recurring periods the consuming torch of mankind, and yet a word at which we forget ourselves, a battle cry, which has filled men with enthusiasm for innumerable really heroic deeds, perhaps the highest and most venerable object for the blind and egoistic multitude, which only in the tremendous moments of state life has the strange expression of greatness on its face. End quote. And so, yeah, that's a, a perfect um, example of Nietzschean sort of two-sidedness, right? The reason why Nietzsche is so enamored with the Greek state is that he feels they're an example of a political structure, sort of, we might say it was in the youth of civilization, um, when civilization was vigorous and healthy. And that in the case of the Greek state, we have an example of a political structure, which was the objectivation, as he calls it, of the natural instinct. Um, you know, but dealing with this contradiction between individual and collective in a more healthy way than our own societies do now, insofar as the state becomes a sort of proving ground for competition. The iron clamp of the state, the danger he points to is it being used to sort of dissolve that pyramidal structure of society and sort of, um, push the masses together closely, you know, we might draw on a phrase from his later writings to, you know, huddle for warmth in herd fashion, right? Um, so the their iron clamp could be, you know, it could be used to create greater comfort. But for the Greek, this was not the case. Instead, it was used to push the Greeks to create healthier, stronger individuals. It wasn't conceived of as existing for the many, but for the few, for the the exception, for the greatest type. And so Nietzsche says the Greek society produced an overflowing of passion among the Greeks, of ambitious, driven individuals who are proud and want to outcompete one another. And he says that nowhere have these levels of passion been matched except in Renaissance Europe. 
Nietzsche continues, quote, This bloody jealousy of city against city, of party against party, this murderous greed of those little wars, the tiger-like triumph over the corpse of the slain enemy, in short, the incessant renewal of those Trojan scenes of struggle and horror, and the spectacle of which, as a genuine Hellene, Homer stands before us absorbed with delight. Whither does this naive barbarism of the Greek state point? What is, its, what is its excuse before the tribunal of eternal justice? Proud and calm, the state steps before this tribunal, and by the hand it leads the flower of blossoming womanhood, Greek society. For this Helena, the state waged those wars, and what gray-bearded judge could here condemn? End quote. And so it's funny because uh, Helena is often used as the... Uh, um, personification of greek culture and i just said well greek cultures probably would be seen as more masculine to nietzsche but i think we can just chalk this up to the fact that it seems like every society on earth likes to represent their state as like a beautiful woman it's very bizarre we even have it here in america the statue of liberty right and so or columbia is the older like symbol and so this is athens attempting to overthrow the dominance of Sparta. This is the various cities competing for who possessed the most beautiful statue, right? Or the most formidable military. This is the Greek spirit as Nietzsche sees it, an eternal competition, unwilling to subordinate oneself to anyone else, unwilling to see the dignity of labor or the dignity of preserving one's life as such, only the dignity of the ruler, genius, the exception. We briefly discussed this in a previous episode, but uh, the one on Plato's Republic, but Nietzsche concludes this fragmentary essay with a nod to Plato for Plato's own expression of this relationship between state and genius. The state is the garden of geniuses, so to speak, but Nietzsche criticizes Plato for only understanding the philosopher as genius, not on all the other types of genius, which is, you know, genius just, it's another way of talking about an exceptional person, somebody who has capacities or abilities which go far beyond the ordinary somebody who can reshape a discipline, sweep away old ideas, reform the polity, or whatever. Uh, you know, in genetics, it's, uh, as we use the example, it's the mutation that pushes forward the genome, right? And so in the polity, it's the genius that pushes forward the society. All Greeks gave a meaning to this unending competition, the Greek Aegon, insofar as they were competing for the greater glory of Hellenic civilization. That's what all the various cities have in common that makes them all Greek. They regard the rest of the world as barbarians, and they recognize one another as related insofar as they are all locked in this competition for greatness, right? And so to conclude with the Greek state, we'll look at a final excerpt, which I think summarizes the role of the state to the Greek as redirecting that natural war of all against all into a process which is meant to sort of channel it into that competition, which then discharges that inner tension in such a way as to attempt to transcend the previous conditions of nature. That the creation of the Greek Aegon, the competition for greatness between the Greeks, is that intersection of state and genius, the state's role in creating culture. And Nietzsche proves of the way the Greeks did it because it pushed them towards more struggle, less comfort, not more. That the herd-like collective comfortableness is the thing that, um, you know, kills off culture and makes the state this all-powerful thing. 
and the Greeks did the opposite. That is their masterstroke politically. And so Nietzsche writes, quote, under this mysterious connection, which we hear divine between state and art, political greed and artistic creation, battlefield and work of art, we understand by the state, as already remarked, only the cramp iron, which compels the social process. Whereas without the state, in the natural, bellum omnium contra omnis, concentrates itself from time to time into a terrible gathering of war clouds, and discharges itself, as it were, in rare but so much the more violent shocks and lightning flashes. But in consequence of the effect of that bellum, an effect which is turned inward and compressed, society is given time during the intervals to germinate and burst into leaf, in order, as soon as warmer days come, to let the shining blossoms of genius sprout forth. End quote. The it's wonderful that he talks about the Aegon in both essays because it's a great jumping off point for the next fragment I want to look at entitled Homer's Contest, which will give us more insight about how Greek culture influenced Nietzsche's political thought. The beginning of Homer's Contest is a wonderful bit of Nietzschean prose. Quote, When one speaks of humanity, the notion lies at the bottom that humanity is that which separates and distinguishes man from nature. But such a distinction does not in reality exist. The natural qualities and the properly called human ones have grown up inseparably together. Man in his highest and noblest capacities is nature and bears in himself her awful twofold character. His abilities generally considered dreadful and inhuman are perhaps indeed the fertile soil out of which alone can grow forth all humanity in emotions, actions, and works. End quote. It's um, wonderful that here in this very early fragment we find the idea that Nietzsche would put forward both in Human All to Human and in Beyond Good and Evil of the idea of our, all that's you know beautiful and graceful and virtuous about humanity growing on the soil of vice and uh, evil and things we call evil, right? Um, but the broader um, topic of that sort of introductory paragraph is the concept we've already sort of discussed that Nietzsche views the state as not something unnatural and imposed upon man's nature in the way that, say, an anarcho-primitivist might regard modern civilization. Nietzsche is keen to see that all of the ways in which mankind has altered his environment and that all the technology we've created and the social rules we impose upon one another, that's all natural, right? How could it not be? It came out of nature ourselves. That was, you know, what was the external factor that was not from nature that, you know, contributed to the social situation we're now in, right? Even if we end up creating circumstances that are supremely unhealthy and cause ourselves great unhappiness, we're still natural beings ourselves. Maybe we've just gone down that path and produced that outcome because evolution sometimes produces dead ends, right? Not every adaptation is adaptive. So it's an odd aspect of our thinking that we regard what is man-made as separate from nature, but perhaps it shouldn't surprise us because ever since body-mind dualism was sort of introduced into the Western mind, we've tended to think of the productions of the intellect as though there's something apart from nature, and we've tended to view ourselves as these autonomous arbiters of thought 
separate from nature and instinct. I mean, we, we may admit that people have instincts, but we ultimately tend to believe that we have the ability to resist or overpower our own instincts with the use of reason, right? Or by, by our free choice is how most people would say it. And so that's where we get the separation between man and nature, I think, which can make us forget that our, our modern society is completely natural um, because there's nothing outside of nature. Now, this is particularly interesting for this era of Nietzsche, however, since during this time, Nietzsche is sort of entertaining Schopenhauerian notions of nature as having this intelligible character in the form of the will, right? And all phenomena in the world as this manifestation of that primordial pain and contradiction. And so here, of course, in mankind, as an expression of nature, we bear within ourselves a contradiction and two-sided character. The man of civilization is a creation of this violent and exploitative process of forming the state. But the productions of culture only come from the civilized person, right? So in essence, it's sort of a restatement of the part where we left off with the Greek state essay. And another note that Nietzsche sounded in that essay, which is repeated here again, is the idea of the seemingly barbaric cruelty that we find in the ancient world and how this can appear as something of a riddle to us modern people. Nietzsche calls the Greeks the most human or the most humane of uh, all ancient peoples. You know, the, the most mention. And yet, in their record, historically, we find what he calls a voluptuousness of cruelty. This is a beautiful paragraph, um, beautiful and ter- terrifying, much like a Greek tragedy, which brings this riddle to a very clear relief. So it's much better than I can do with writing my own commentary, so I'll just read it in full. Quote, Thus the Greeks... The most humane men of ancient times have in themselves a trait of cruelty, of tiger-like pleasure and destruction, a trait which in the grotesquely magnified image of the Hellene in Alexander the Great is very plainly visible, which, however, in their whole history, as well as in their mythology, must terrify us who meet them with the emasculate idea of modern humanity. When Alexander has the feet of Battus, the brave defender of Gaza, bored through, and binds the living body to his chariot in order to drag him about, exposed to the scorn of his soldiers. That is a sickening caricature of Achilles, who at night ill-uses Hector's corpse by a similar trailing. But even this trait has for us something offensive, something which inspires horror. It gives us a peek into the abysses of hatred." With the same sensation, perhaps we stand before the bloody and insatiable self-laceration of two Greek parties, as, for example, in the Corsirian Revolution. When the victor, in a fight of the cities according to the law of warfare, executes the whole male population and sells all the women and children into slavery, we see, in the sanction of such a law, that the Greek deemed it a positive necessity to allow his hatred to break forth unimpeded. In such moments, the compressed and swollen feeling relieved itself. The tiger bounded forth. A voluptuous cruelty shone out of his fearful eye. Why had the Greek sculptor to represent again and again war and fights in innumerable repetitions, extended human bodies whose sinews are tightened through hatred or through the recklessness of triumph, fighters wounded and writhing with pain, or the dying with the last rattle in their throat? 
Why did the whole Greek world exult in the fighting scenes of the Iliad? I am afraid we do not understand them enough in Greek fashion, and that we should even shudder if for once we did understand them thus. End quote. So you might recognize, for example, the reference, I think it's very clear to the history of the Peloponnesian War there. Uh, a couple of references, actually. There's the bloody class war that took place in Corsera, which Thucydides says resulted in widespread breaking forth of violence and hatred, score settling, even brother killing brother, and so on. And the fate of Milos, which sounds exactly like what Nietzsche describes here, the execution of the male population, selling off of the women and children into slavery. And he says that this kind of behavior we find in Greek history is sanctioned by their culture as the right of the stronger. The strong do what they can and the weak suffer what they must, as the Athenians say to the Melians. And the Greeks, rather than shying away from this, represent it in their art and make it an object of beauty. And the most effective, the effective example, I think, out of all of that still, um, is that uh, the example of what Alexander the Great does to Battus. Um, you know, that you would like very torturously kill and then like demean the body of a of a brave man, right? Someone who ought to be admired. That's what our unconscious valuations usually tell us, right? Um, we, we have a kind of sickening horror at hearing of someone who fought bravely, who was willing to fight and die for their principles, being like ill-treated and killed in a horrible way. But Nietzsche explains this by appealing to a very straightforward principle, that it's a glimpse into unrestrained hatred. It's actually not very complicated. It's actually horrifyingly simple, right? That the Greeks believed that allowing for the unrestrained expression of hatred to be a quote-unquote good thing, which is quite against our own valuations of the good. This is the sense that Nietzsche has for those with the master morality, a concept based, it should be said, largely on the Greeks themselves, right? The recompense for a slight against you must be allowed to sort of flow out in your actions. You have to be allowed to take the immediate reactive action, right? Um, to take revenge in some sense, right? And if that's blocked and one has to hold on to his hatred, it poisons you and it turns into resentment. Um, and so that kind of thing is what happens to people who don't possess power. A powerful person acts on their cruelty when it's demanded by their instincts. And that way, it sort of remains a natural reaction rather than a slow psychological poison. This is what Nietzsche means when he talks about the two types of revenge in human all too human. The original type of revenge was a simple impulse to do harm to that which harms me, to immediately react and destroy what one finds threatening or harmful. But the second type is you know, the old slight that one has to hold on to and make calculations as to how to obtain revenge, right? It becomes a completely different intellectual phenomenon. And ultimately, the longer that this desire for revenge goes unsatisfied, the more resentful the person becomes. And so the Greeks confront us with this horrific reality of a powerful ruling class who has no moral law compelling them to mercy or to justice as we would find with a ruling class like post-Christianity, right? And this means that when they make war on one another, they end up committing atrocities because they don't have any restraint on their use of force or violence to destroy their enemy. Or rather, we could say 
there's no moral restriction on what we might call a natural capacity for brutality, as Nietzsche sees it. But instead, what he sees in Greek culture that did restrain them was not a moral thing at all. Um, for, I mean, you could say it was the Greek state itself, right? The iron clamp. Uh, but it was this cultural orientation of focusing that violent energy into the Aegon, right? The Greek competition for greatness. To explain this, we need to explain uh, two German terms used in the essay, Wettkampf and Vernichtungskampf. Vet means a bet or a wager. Kampf means struggle. And so Wettkampf is a competition in the sense we'd normally see that term used today. A struggle between friends, a rivalry, a struggle to be the best among athletes would cover all those terms. Um, Vernichtungskampf, on the other hand, means a war of extermination. And so it's quite a different type of struggle from a Wettkampf. Both are a struggle, but the, the Aegon is a Wettkampf, and it's imperative that that does not break out into Vernichtungskampf. If the goal of culture is to be attained, right? The creation of genius and the works of genius. And so when we look at the total portrait of the Greek society, um, we find that the Greek nobility are, as with Theogenes, they're people with traditional values which are inherited. They are educated not philosophically, but educated to emulate, to carry out the same rituals as their fathers did, to engage in the same pomp and gestures of admiration for their elders, to become priests in the religion of their family and their tribe and their city. And they must gain a power over the way they present themselves, become unmoved by their emotions, able to perform their duties without showing irritation and boredom and so on. Now, that's not commensurate with strife and struggle or with the Aegon, which emphasizes one's individuality, um, right? The Aegon emphasizes standing out from others, right? But this competition for greatness is sort of counterbalanced with this emulation in Greek culture. Um, we might remember the work of De Coulange, where he talks about how the rituals had to be repeated exactly as they were handed down, right? And so the Greek religion well, and, and the important thing is that that wasn't a, it wasn't moral in the sense that we would think about it today, right? Um, it wasn't moral in the sense of that they had any conception that this was just or fair or based on any principle of, you know, greatest good for the greatest many or even uh, sort of goodness in the Christian sense, um, like metaphysical goodness, right? It's you... Um, you did these things um, based on a religion that was an attempt to, in some sense, um, gain power over your environment and over yourself. It's a superstitious religion that's a deification of the human will and sort of believes that the sort of sees a human will in all the operations of nature and believes that you can appease them by certain means. Um so it's very, very hard to correlate it with anything that we'd recognize as like morality today, even though these are sort of like, you might call it like the moral values of Rome or Greece, right? But this Aegon always exists alongside that. Um, and it's so powerful because there's not a moral condemnation of jealousy, but instead a sort of celebration of jealousy. The gods themselves are jealous and envy is celebrated as a driver of the struggle for greatness. Nietzsche writes, quote, the greater and more noble the Greek, 
the more intense burns the fire of ambition, devouring anyone who runs with him on the same lane. End quote. And that the Greek academy was founded on the premise that, quote, all talent must arise out of struggle. End quote. I quoted a little bit from this essay in the first episode of Renato Christi, uh, something he argues in his essay about um, Nietzsche's political philosophy. Um, I'm going to read a section from it here that deals with, highlights just this aspect of, the, of Nietzsche's political thought regarding the Greeks. He writes, quote, The struggle could not end with the annihilation of the adversary. Wettkampf that led to Vernichtungskampf dispensed with emulation. Nietzsche observed that in the natural order, one witnessed, quote, numerous geniuses that incite themselves mutually toward action. And he saw the, quote, abomination of autocracy together with the practice of ostracism as the core of Hellenic pedagogy, end quote. What Christie is referencing there is Nietzsche's argument in the text of Homer's Contest that the competition was so central to the Greek culture that anything which threatened the continuation of the competition required the Greek polity to stamp that out. And that means, paradoxically speaking, that there can never actually be a winner, at least never a final winner, right? If somebody wins once and for all, then the game's over. And the Greeks couldn't tolerate this, having based their culture on the principle of continuing this game of competition forever. And so whenever someone came too close to winning, right, the collective had to remove the winner so that the competition could go on. And this is Nietzsche's explanation for the unusual practice of ostracism, in which the Athenian democracy, for example, they'd all vote once per year to select a citizen to expel from the city. Um... And so Nietzsche basically says, whenever somebody became too great and pissed everyone off by being too much of a threat, outshining everyone in all the in endeavors uh, of the you know sort of common competition they're all in, they could just vote to ostracize them, and the competition could be begin anew. It's also Nietzsche's understanding of what Coulange called the revolution of the aristocrats against the kings, right? The abomination of autocracy, the Greeks abominating the idea of a single ruler or a single tyrant. It's unacceptable that one person should sit on the top of the pyramid. The role of the winner has to always sort of go unoccupied, or at least it can never be occupied for very long by the same person, um, because you need that potential for anyone to be able to become the winner, but paradoxically no one can. And so Nietzsche writes in Homer's Contest, quote, if one wants to see that sentiment unashamed in its naive expressions, the sentiment as to the necessity of competition, lest the state's welfare be threatened, one should think of the original meaning of ostracism, as, for example, the Ephesians pronounced it at the banishment of Hermodorus. Heraclitus says, quote, Among us, nobody shall be the best. If, if, however, someone is the best, then let him be so elsewhere and among others. End quote. Why should not someone be the best? Because with that, the competition would fail, and the eternal life basis of the Hellenic state would be endangered. Later on, ostracism receives quite another position with regard to competition. It is applied when the danger becomes obvious that one of the great competing politicians and party leaders feels himself urged on in the heat of the conflict towards harmful and destructive measures and dubious coups d'etat. 
The original sense of this peculiar institution, however, is not that of a safety valve, but that of a stimulant. The all-excelling individual was to be removed in order that the competition of forces might reawaken, a thought which is hostile to the exclusiveness of genius in the modern sense, but which assumes that in the natural order of things there are always several geniuses which incite one another to action, as much also as they hold one another within the bounds of moderation. That is the kernel of the Hellenic competition conception. It abominates autocracy and fears its dangers. It desires as a preventive against the genius, a second genius, end quote. And so we should notice whom Nietzsche chooses to quote here. Heraclitus complaining about the banishment of his friend, Hermodorus. Heraclitus wrote that the Ephesians, by banishing Hermodorus, had selected the best man among them, but had expelled him. And, you know, he, in so many words, laments this type of behavior as inevitably bringing about the destruction of Ephesus, right? It's decisions like those that bring the city to ruin. It's why he regarded going and playing knucklebones with the children in the temple as better than getting involved in the civic life uh, of Ephesus. Um, because these people were clearly uh, fools, right? And so we shouldn't regard this as a wholly positive endorsement of the Greek culture, because Nietzsche probably would side with Heraclitus in criticizing that city for casting out its best citizen, right? But Nietzsche, importantly, understands why they would do such a thing. He understands the psychology, or at least, uh, you know, that's his assertion. It's not a safety measure against great individuals, but to stimulate the growth of more of them Um, because multiple geniuses sort of incite one another, right? Um, It's like a a critical mass of geniuses. It's an atomic reaction. And so furthermore, Nietzsche recognizes in the Greek, Aegon is strictly aristocratic pursuit. And of course it would be. Originally, these were the only citizens of the Greek city-states. But that such a competition between the plebeians and the patricians, that was to be rejected just as Theogenes did. The Aegon takes place, as Christie puts it, quote, within the closed circle of Homeric aristocracy, end quote. And uh, Christie then cites Eke Homo, where Nietzsche writes, quote, you cannot wage war against things you hold in, in contempt, end quote. And so in the Greek competition, as with the state, we find something toward which Nietzsche is two-sided about. Uh, For one, it is the driving engine of Greek greatness. But on the other hand, it has to be moderated. We have to bring in the value of emulation alongside it, as well as the understanding that this competition is taking place among friends who have a mutual affection in their rivalry, that it can't turn into the war of annihilation or else all the fruits that the competition produces will be consumed in the fire as well. And so this is his way of understanding both why the Greeks occasionally let their unrestrained cruelty break forth, but how they manage to regulate it without recourse to moral ideas. It's through institutions like the ostracism, for example, that the all-consuming ambition is kept from becoming um, overwhelming to society, and this occasionally has terrible consequences in and of itself, like banishing Hermodorus, but sort of the bird's eye view of the Greek society that we can glean from all these considerations is one in which everything is devoted to the fostering of exceptions 
and then making sure that these exceptional people don't kill each other or destroy society, right? The competition, the Aegon is a key part of this, but it's just as important that we understand what it isn't. It isn't an annihilation war. It's a constrained Bella Omnium Contra Omnis. It's not universal, and it's because it doesn't. he doesn't think it should go on between all of society, right? Um, just sort of the genius class of people, and it's tempered by other aspects of Greek culture. Nietzsche suggests that even the Greek myths had a role in helping to constrain the overwhelming Greek penchant for competition. The folk tales of the pre-Homeric world often featured characters who attained the heights of glory only for some personal failure or vice, often the result of their own ambition to destroy themselves and darken an otherwise spotless legacy. And so what is Homer's contest? It is the Aegon as manifest in the arts, in the competition among dramatists, right? And if we remember in the last fragment, the Greek state, Nietzsche indicated that the ancient Greek had a tinge of shame about any labor he had to undertake, even if it was in the arts, right? Because the idea of being made to submit for the labor of a god or muse was itself a disgrace. But here he indicates a way in which art was in fact a source of glory for the Greek, insofar as art could be an arena for competition. And he notes that this is often what we find in the artists of modernity, um, but they, they'll do the most to distance themselves from this idea. And I would say I find that to be mostly true. You, you know, among artists today, there's always talk about art for art's sake. And yet I've heard many of my musician friends express the most bitter resentment about more successful artists than them. Um, you know, uh, especially people from the same sort of like hometown scene who somehow have transcended it and attained notoriety beyond that. That, in truth, competition is driving art just like everything else. Um, artists are loath to admit this fact because it seems to be a low or unworthy motive for art, but we're always comparing ourselves to other people and so on and so forth. Um, but so in any case, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll go to this passage here. Um, I think it's the last passage we're going to look at today from Homer's contest. Quote, distrustfully jealous, the great musical masters, Pindar and Simonides stepped side by side. In rivalry, the sophist, the higher teacher of antiquity, meets his fellow sophist. Even the most universal kind of instruction through the drama was imparted to the people only under the form of an enormous wrestling of the great musical and dramatic artists. How wonderful! And even the artist has a grudge against the artist. And the modern man dislikes in an artist nothing so much as the personal battle feeling. Whereas the Greek recognizes the artist only in such a personal struggle. There, where the modern suspects weakness of the work of art, the Hellene seeks the source of his highest strength. End quote. And so I think it's a fitting note to end on, because it's an ambivalent note yet again. What was the Greek's feeling toward art, according to Nietzsche? Well, in one Nietzsche essay here, the Greek sees a sense of shame, and in the other, he says the Greek sees a sense of glory. And which one is correct? Well, they both are. That in the labor required for art, there's a sense of shame, but in the competition, one finds their highest strength. And so one might also see a contradiction between Nietzsche's later views on resentment, right? And the master morality as being completely self-directed in contrast to the externally directed sense of the slave morality. 
and the views Nietzsche puts forward here, that jealousy was something good to the Greeks, um, seem to contradict with that, right? Because the Greeks are someone for whom he has praise. But I th again, I don't think that view gives Nietzsche enough credit in being able to separate his own views from that of the Greeks. I mean, after all, it's not a small thing that he says our modern ideas offer us an advantage over the Greeks, such as our ability to see the dignity and labor, in spite of the dangers that that view might lead us on to. And it's also worth noting that he cites perhaps his favorite Greek, Heraclitus, who criticizes the Greek practice of ostracism, which Nietzsche describes as an integral part of this culture of competition and jealousy. And so Nietzsche does not assert all of these things about the Greek state, society, and culture in order to advocate for it wholesale. That's never his point. But it provides us with a complete picture of a morality and a political worldview which is so foreign to ours and rooted in entirely different values. And by looking at that, we can have some idea of what our own values are and how they stand in relation. And you can only kind of come into awareness of where your own values come from and what justifies them when you have that point of contradiction or contrast, right? It's that old Chinese saying that jade can only be sharpened with jade from another mountain. Um, and there are ways in which the Greek civilization simply can't be emulated, as Coulange emphasizes. Um, and so I just wanted to say at this point, Nietzsche's project, at this very early date in his writings, um, and I would say throughout his career, his project is not simply to say the Greeks are good and our society is bad. But, um, so this is just sort of a, a snapshot of Nietzsche's political influence from the Greeks, right? These two essays anyway. And that's been, I mean, a lot of the influence we've looked at would be primarily an influence on Nietzsche during his early days, or that's when he's first getting exposed to them, is sort of when he's in his time as a classical philologist, right? And he's writing Birth of Tragedy, and he's taking his first steps into philosophical thought. Um, and so if you take nothing else away from all of our study of Nietzsche's sort of Greek influence um, on his political ideas, I think the most important thing is to look at the questions that Nietzsche was prompted to ask and to meditate on those ourselves. What is the origin of the state? What is the function of the state? What end does it serve? What end does it serve in actual practice and what end ought it to serve in your view? And specific to the Greeks, what can the Greeks tell us about states, about the life cycle of states? What does the form of the Greek state reveal to us about their culture? How did state and culture influence one another? And in which direction does the influence flow most strongly? Like the Greek state, the essay Homer's Contest ends abruptly because these are simply fragments, right? They're threads of thought that only sort of began here in ancient Greece, right? Um, that Nietzsche, he doesn't have the answer to at this early date in his writing. He develops it across his whole career. And so what we've discussed so far this season is the beginning, the basis, the foundation of Nietzsche's philosophical project. And this is what I've called Nietzsche's contest. The struggle in the philosophical realm 
to oppose the conceptions of the state based on moral illusions. Not to wage war in the contemporary political arena, but to remove oneself from that struggle and to concern himself with a conflict which is untimely and in some sense timeless, the contest over which values ought to guide human civilization. That's the arena that Nietzsche would prefer to enter. And he invokes ideas that had not been seriously argued since the time of the Greeks. Ideas which the Greeks themselves expressed innocently, naively, but which we have now made immoral in our conception of them. It's the darkest part of Nietzsche's philosophy because we all wish it wasn't there and we would like to not subject ourselves to it. But this is the reason, after all, why Nietzsche exalts us to be wanderers through ice and mountain peaks in a metaphorical sense, to travel into forbidden country, forsake the voice of our conscience or the demands of the many, to regard truth not as something that will set you free in such a sedate sense, but as something hard and something which is difficult to chew on. It's Nietzsche's attempt at creating a new kind of intellectual culture, one which could toler tolerate terrifying notions, which he salvaged from the Greek world. The lessons taught by the harsh teacher of war, as Thucydides calls it, in, for example, the Melian Dialogue. This image that Nietzsche gives us of the Greeks, that he holds up for us in order to contradict our modern values, in order to bring us into an ancient mode of thought, this is the basis of his contest, his attempt to struggle with utilitarian values in this dangerous direction in society. And so, again, we don't have to take anything from his project, but it's, it is valuable, I think, to have that image and to um, try to sincerely engage with um, the values of the Greeks, because by doing so, we can better know ourselves. That's all, everyone. Um, next week, we go to the Renaissance, as I mentioned, with Machiavelli. All right, signing off. If you enjoyed the Nietzsche podcast or found it helpful, you can visit us and support the show at patreon.com slash untimelyreflections. The link is in the description. Or just share the show with any of your friends that you think might enjoy it or on social media. Thank you for your support.